1: I could stay here forever.
0: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up, everyone? It's Dr. Will Cole, and welcome to The Art of Being Well. I am a leading functional medicine expert. I get to consult people around the world via webcam. I started one of the world's first functional medicine telehealth centers over a decade ago, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, which is my newest book, and also Ketotarian and The Inflammation Spectrum. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, or the books, and there's loads of free content there as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. All right, let's get to today's guest. He is a good friend of mine and an esteemed colleague in functional medicine. His name is Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and a five-time New York Times best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. His books, you may have heard of them. They are groundbreaking books in our field. Brainwash, Grain Brain, so many great books. Brain Maker, I could go on and on. Great stuff. And in today's conversation, we cover some very exciting things that I know you all will love. We talk about how and what actually is disconnection syndrome and why you wanna know what this means, and the other factors that are linked to many brain health issues and other inflammatory health issues. We talk about applying the acronym TIME, T-I-M-E, you have to learn about this, toward better decision making. We talk about the impact and effects of blue light on our health. We talk about the really exciting research that Dr. Perlmutter discusses in his book, Brainwash. And we talk about what Dr. Perlmutter has learned about the art of being well in his illustrious career. All right, let's get to today's conversation with my friend, Dr. David Perlmutter. My friend, Dr. Perlmutter, thanks so much for taking the time and being on the show. It's great to see you again. I'm trying to think back when we last saw each other. It was in California, I suspect, right? Yeah, I think it was. It probably was on for GoopFellas when we we're all there. It, that's I exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly. It, I right. wasn't in studio for that one, but I talked to you. I was I was in the clinic. But yeah. And normally, I mean, under normal circumstances, I'm see, we're seeing each other at least a couple of times a year for a di- different events. It's different the past year.
1: It'll, you know, it's like when you fast and then you finally have dinner or or break <laughs> your fast and it's you savor it. So I'm gonna
0: look forward to seeing you. That'll be great. Yeah, likewise. So you're a wealth of knowledge on so much, so many things, but I want to talk about your most recent book, Brainwash. How did the book come to be? Take me back to the early days as a writer and as a clinician of how this, the formulation of the book began.
1: The book was actually had its genesis in this exact room where I'm sitting right now. I was over, there's a couch over there and my son was sitting in this chair Mm -hmm. And he is an internal medicine uh, MD. And we were talking about, you know, what would it take to be more effective as a doctor? And we realized that we do the best we can to learn as much information as we possibly can to offer up new ideas for our patients. We then transmit that information to our patients as best we can using whatever Mm skill set we have. And then we hope for the best. And that's where it seems uh, the situation breaks down. The paradigm breaks down because, you know, so often, more often than not, when we give great, and I'm sure you've experienced this for many years, you give the best information you can to the patient. They come back to see you after a couple of months, nothing's changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've gained weight. Their insulin levels are higher. Their blood sugars are higher. Whatever it is that you're trying to help them with uh, doesn't seem to be going in the right direction because they didn't follow through on the information. In other Mm -hmm. words, they didn't make the right choice. And we, we came to an understanding as we began to explore, what is it in our brains that is so fundamental for our ability to make a good decision? What's going on in there? And that's what we decided we would approach because that's the weak link in the chain. If mm-hmm. we can give people the mental horsepower to make better choices, to subscribe to the things that they think are going to be helpful for them, then we're gonna be a heck of a lot more successful and more people are gonna benefit from what we try to impart uh, on them. So Mm -hmm. Austin and I uh, did the deep dive into how does the brain make a decision? How do we make decisions? And it turns out that there are some pretty straightforward areas of the brain that are involved in either being impulsive and saying, I want the jelly donut right now and I'm gonna have it come what may, or I wanna stay up all night, or I wanna take drugs or whatever you wanna do or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, or I'm going to make a decision that says, uh, you know, today I'm going to fast or today I'm going to get more exercise. or I'm going to reach out to other people. I'll spend more time out of doors. I will engage in meditation, all of the things that might be better for you that Mm -hmm. again, we talk about. So it's about really how is the brain constructed to be impulsive and self-centered or how does it make challenges uh, address challenges that might lead to decisions that think about long-term consequences that think about not just how these uh, uh, decisions are going to affect me, but how they may affect the next person, the other person, which is called empathy and how they may play out uh, in the long run, long-term more complex decision-making. Mm-hmm. We learned that certainly the brain is very complex, but there are two primary areas that are involved in decision-making. One is the uh, amygdala, which is involved in impulsivity. Uh, which says, I want the jelly donut now, come what may. And the other is this prefrontal cortex, this Mm -hmm. area up here behind our foreheads that says, whoa, hang on a second, let's think this through. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that we can very much engage in changes in our lives, lifestyle choices that can foster better decision-making by allowing us to, to amplify the role of the prefrontal cortex and at the same time, suppress the urges, which is really what you know, willpower is all about. And mm-hmm. I don't mean will-call power, there's a lot of power there <laughs> too. The name of your next book. I think we did this once before, actually. It was, we? I think so. I, I think anyway,
0: we, we need to, if not, we should- You need correct. to own that. We, yeah, we will have to patent that.
1: <laughs> but uh, the important part of, of the revelation is that the prefrontal cortex exercises control we call it top-down control mm-hmm. over the more primitive reptilian brain. In this case, the impuls- impulsivity, poor decision-maker, the amygdala. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the amygdala is a bad thing. We need snap decisions on occasion. You know, that's what allows you, the amygdala allows you to, uh, uh, to, to, for example, you're backing your car up There's a, and, you're, and you see a kid in the rear view mirror or camera these days on a tricycle. You step on the brake. You don't think, well, maybe in the long run, it's a good idea. We need those types of instantaneous decisions. But to instantaneously decide I'm going to eat this and I know it's bad for me, but heck, I'm going to go for it anyway,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, leads to trouble. So what I'm saying is then in the clinic, when we are seeing, for example, an overweight diabetic, it doesn't make sense always to say, okay, today, Mr. Jones, because here's your first day, we're going to set you on, on your path to, to getting better. We're going to talk about the right foods that you should be eating. It's not going to work. Mr. Jones has visited many other doctors, read the books, seen the shows, and knows darn well what he or she shouldn't eat. Mm -hmm. Might well have uh, looked at the data with respect to becoming non-diabetic by engaging a ketogenic diet, but never even thought that he would do that. What we might do instead is think to ourselves, how can we help this patient restructure his brain such that he makes better decisions. And then in the future, we can approach him with the right dietary choices and he's in a better position to do that. Mm-hmm. It might be as simple as asking Mr. Jones, how well do you sleep? And then be prepared for the answer. Well, I sleep great. Move on. And yeah. take it a little further. Say, well, how long do you sleep? Well, I sleep eight hours a night. Then ask the question, well, is that good sleep? And Mr. Jones is going to say to you, Uh, Well, Dr. Cole, how in the heck should I know? And it's a great question because I would ask you how you would know and you would probably tell me, well, I have a wearable device and I know darn well how I sleep. I can tell you I know how well I sleep. I have an aura ring and I wake up in the morning and it says I got eight hours and 12 minutes of sleep. I spent one hour and 18 minutes in deep sleep, two hours in REM sleep. It took me this long to get to sleep. I had uh, two interruptions where I actually wake, whatever. My point is- Yeah, right. We have the technology to determine not just the length of sleep, but the quality of sleep. Mm-hmm. That's hugely important because it weighs in on the decision making the very next day. Mm-hmm. It is one of the arbiters of determining whether you're going to make decisions from the amygdala, which will be impulsive, or you're going to bring online the prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex and decide. That maybe you're not going to eat until noon, and when you do, you're going to have a salad. And to think about eating more good fat. All the mm-hmm. all the things that we know are important for you. So these are on ramps to better decision making: getting more sleep, mm-hmm. getting more quality sleep, getting out into nature, re-engaging your exercise program, meditating, connecting with other people. Lots of things that Austin and I, in writing Brainwash, discovered, are mm-hmm. really good
0: hacks, if you will, yeah. uh, to get back to better decision-making. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive daily nutritional beverage. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Our busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutrients. This is where Athletic Greens can help. It is a life-changing nutritional habit. Their daily all-in-one superfood powder is your nutritional essential. It is by far the easiest and most delicious nutritional habit that you can add to your daily routine today and empower towards better habits for the rest of your life. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. I love it because I'm consulting patients all day long. I'm a Functional Medicine Telehealth Center. I love getting this nutrient-dense source in between consulting patients. It's so convenient and so effective and tastes delicious. Just one tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral probiotic, a green superfood blend, and more that all work together synergistically to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase your energy and focus, aid with digestion, and supports a healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products or pills. And right now they are offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. So whether you're looking for peak performance or better health, covering your bases with Athletic Greens makes investing in your energy, immune system, gut health, each day super simple, tasty, and efficient. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash Will Cole and join health experts like myself Athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com/slash willcole and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Digestive problems are so common for so many people. I mean, things like gas, bloating, constipation, heartburn, looser stools acid reflux. I mean, there's so many different digestive symptoms that people just settle for. Just because something's your everyday doesn't mean you should settle for it. Just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. 70 to 80% of your immune system is in your gut. So digestive problems don't just impact your digestion. It impacts your body systemically. Hippocrates, if you remember him, (laughs) the father of modern medicine, he said, all health problems begin in the gut. And now research is catching up with that, that the majority of health problems today, things like autoimmune issues, metabolic issues, even brain health issues, have gut-centric components to their pathophysiology. So stomach disruption can be more than just digestive problems. The trillions of beneficial bacteria in our gut are crucial for our overall health. They break down food, teach your body how to recognize threats and supports your optimal immune strength. Feeling your best requires that you have as much good bacteria living in your gut as possible. Unfortunately, it doesn't take much to deplete your supply. Stress levels can impact it. Just one round of antibiotics, poor food choices, exposure to chemicals like glyphosate, or a viral infection can all do a number on your gut garden, your microbiome. And that's why I'm such a big fan of Just Thrive Probiotic. I recently had Just Thrive's founder and microbiologist on the podcast, definitely check out that episode. Just Thrive Probiotic is vastly different because of one word, survivability. See, most probiotics die well before they ever get to your gut. Even the supposedly special probiotics in the refrigerated section are in effect dead on arrival. This makes sense. If a probiotic can't survive at room temperature, how could it possibly survive your 98.6 degree body temperature? It just doesn't make sense. Just Thrive Probiotic is different because their proprietary strains are designed to survive. Personally, I've added Just Thrive Probiotic to my daily routine and I am loving it. I highly, highly recommend it. For exceptional gut and immune support, there is nothing like Just Thrive Probiotic. To get 15% off your order today, go to justthrivehealth.com and use promo code WILLCOLE at checkout. Again, that's justthrivehealth.com. Use promo code WILLCOLE at checkout for 15% off your order today.
1: Hi, I'm Ali Webb, the founder of Drybar.
0: Hey, I'm Adrian Kayla, the founder of Take New Ground.
1: Previously on Raising the Bar, Michael and I learned how founders moved from idea to scale. In this new season, we'll be exploring the inner world of an entrepreneur, the juicy stuff.
0: Suing a vision brings up fear and personal challenges, the stuff that nobody likes to talk about. So we dive into what it takes to overcome the obstacles that make most people quit. This is a study on perseverance.
1: Adrian is a coach for select executives. I love his brilliant mind and deep love for people, including me.
0: So if you're starting a business and already want out, tune in. You might not be as alone as you think. Just to reiterate the things that Dr. Perlmutter just said for everybody that's listening, we all want to do healthier things in our life. So whether that is exercising more, whether that's eating a clean diet, a lot of us try and we grit our teeth and we push through something, but there's only so long that our willpower can can play out. And most of the time people fail. So what you're advocating for in Brainwash is coming at this with a different perspective. And you talk about these two, Parts of our brain, which I love in the book, and I've heard you speak about very eloquently the the difference that, from an evolutionary standpoint, the different uh, difference of the amygdala versus the prefrontal yeah, I cortex. Mean, again,
1: we need the amygdala. I'm not yeah. saying we ought to all go have our amygdalas removed <laughs> and we make better decisions. We at times need to have quick decisions that don't. You don't right. want to think it through when you have you touch mm-hmm. the hot stove. Even right. when you think, well, it's hot. My my finger is sizzling. Maybe I should, you know. So, uh, but that said, I think that, uh, you know, by and large, it's good to bring that good decision maker uh, and calm down that five-year-old who wants just mm-hmm. what I want and I want it now. Right. And that's what we call top-down control. We didn't invent that term. It's the top-down control from this wonderful gift we have, this prefrontal cortex, to rein in the child in the room, bring the adult mm-hmm. back in the room, make the better decisions. and. The most important thing that reduces the ability of the prefrontal cortex to exercise this top-down control is actually something you wrote a book about, the inflammation spectrum. How so pervasive is this mechanism of inflammation in all the things Mm -hmm. that we don't want to get. We don't wanna get Alzheimer's, coronary heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, you name it. These are inflammatory disorders. And guess what? It turns out that inflammation is playing a central role in cutting down this influence that the prefrontal cortex, the adult in the room has Mm -hmm. on our more primitive, impulsive decision-maker. So everything that we can do to reduce inflammation in terms of our dietary choices, other lifestyle choices, exercise, sleep, et cetera, whatever Mm -hmm. we can do to target inflammation will help us keep the adult in the room and help us make better decisions about our health, about anything in our lives. We were uh, recently puzzled at first and then pleased to hear that Brainwash, it was published also in England, it's in 14 languages, was adopted by this group that gives information out about making financial decisions. Whether you're going to buy this next stock because you read an article this morning, you're going to put some money into it, which probably doesn't work out well, or you're going to slow down a little bit let's look at some data and make a more informed decision i.e bring the prefrontal cortex on board and look you know recruit as much information as you can externally Mm -hmm. but also what the prefrontal cortex does is it recruits information internally past experiences logs into different parts of your brain allows you to amalgamate information from your previous experiences that you can then leverage to make Mm -hmm. a better decision today.
0: Mm-hmm. So what most of us have varying levels of over overactivation of our amygdala, uh, this that petulant child in the room, and we're trying to rebalance that and get our prefrontal cortex being more supportive, stronger, healthier. Something you talk about in the book is this concept of disconnection syndrome, which I love how you put it. And it's a very descriptive term of what's going on. Can you explain what, what that is? Sure. So we
1: we created this term disconnection syndrome and it became a thing. Now it's a, you know, people are talking about it. It's a thing. It's a thing. And Mm -hmm. um, we originally rounded out the definition to really be what you and I've just talked about. Mm -hmm. And that is this disconnection of the prefrontal cortex from the amygdala. In other words, losing that top-down control. And subsequently uh, in the book, we talk about other kind of manifestations of disconnection syndrome or other definitions of it, but let's just Mm -hmm. stay there for just one moment. And, you know, when we look around our world right now, I think we're seeing a lot of impulsive uh, behavior Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm not characterizing any particular group, but I think a lot of what's going on in the world is impulsive and self-centered that takes me back to inflammation through the mechanism of diet. You know, the modern Western, highly processed, Refined carbohydrate diet, we will all agree, hopefully, is a pro inflammatory diet. That Western diet is becoming the global diet. So, that Westernization of the global diet is creating higher levels of inflammation around the planet. And if inflammation is severing us from the ability to think of other people and to think long range in terms of our decision making, then the globalization of this Western diet might explain as a factor why we're seeing such nationalism globally where you know our countries are becoming much much more uh, centered on their ideologies mm-hmm. and less concerned about others less concerned about the planet and you know again uh, i think food is playing a big role in that so mm-hmm. that's the you know i think the reason we first came upon or, or created this term disconnection syndrome Mm -hmm. But we, as we explain in the book, we can extrapolate that uh, that term to be the disconnection that we have induced by our modern lifestyles. The disconnection we have from our DNA, Mm -hmm. that our DNA wants to express itself in such a way that it reduces inflammation, that it provides trophic uh, uh, chemicals for our brain, for our body, that it allows uh, things to happen uh, like autophagy, getting rid of defective cellular parts that it does things to keep us alive. And it really, I guess, uh, is sort of the the fundamental there of uh, the paleo mentality that we've kind of gotten away from signaling our DNA in the way that it's used to being signaled. It's this environmental uh, evolutionary disconnect, which has Mm -hmm. been talked about. That's an important part of disconnection syndrome. We're disconnected from the life-sustaining messaging of our gut bacteria, our gut bacteria doing their damnedest to keep us healthy because it's in their interest. They want a nice warm place to, to live with lots of food. That's good for them. And, you know, we disconnect from the fact that they are supportive of our lives Mm. by creating certain things, by reducing inflammation via Modulating our immune systems and reinforcing the integrity of the gut lining, keeping us happy by helping create good neurochemistry, neurotransmitters, a variety of things that they do. They modulate our genome, for crying out loud. Uh, disconnection from each other is, boy, that is front and center these days, that's for mm-hmm. sure. And certainly the disconnection that is quite evident uh, amongst humans from you know, the, the relationship to our planet that has always been one of the fundamental issues that humans appreciated was our interrelationship with the planet that sustains us. We seem quite distant from from that relationship these days.
0: Yeah. One of the factors on on that note, kind of touching on, on what you just said, one of the factors of disconnection syndrome that you talk about in the book is loneliness. And we are so hyper, quote unquote, connected in many ways with the advent of social media and the internet and technology But you look at the statistics of loneliness and anxiety and depression from that loneliness. Can you talk about that? Why are we so connected? How can we be so connected, but yet be so lonely at the same time?
1: Well, let's, and we can layer that upon uh, our current situation where we are basically being told to isolate these days. So it, it becomes a real challenge. Loneliness, as a characteristic is powerfully associated with some of our most pervasive uh, and pernicious uh, disease processes, like Alzheimer's and, and coronary artery disease, and diabetes and obesity. So, there's a lot that rides along this loneliness issue. And it's puzzling that, you know, we live in a, a country of what, 340 million individuals, and mm-hmm. yet people feel lonely. And we have this thing called social media which you know the nomenclature would lead us to believe that You know, this is a way that we socially interact with others But it breeds loneliness because it breeds a sense of isolation and uh, Inferiority and fear that's what happens on our social media experiences I'm not going to outright Castigate the internet the internet, you know can be a wonderful resource. My gosh, you know, to democratize knowledge the way the internet has the opportunity to do is—it's it, so powerful that uh, we can right. share ideas and that we can move the ball down the field by interacting with other people and looking mm-hmm. at other ideas that we may not have thought of, and even other ideas that may, you know, be counteractive uh, towards what our goals may be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that said, uh, we know that forty-two uh, percent of the time that Americans are awake, they're in front of a screen of one form or another, be it their phone pad, television, uh, or computer. That, you know, is can be threatening when we recognize what a powerful hack occurs while we're involved in, in being online. How our online experiences are absolutely manipulated to captivate our attention and ultimately to captivate our decision-making mm-hmm. such that we end up buying things and, you, you know, supportive of other people that You know, our attention is really sold to the highest bidder online. I think that's pretty clear. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So again, I think there's great value to the technology that we have that allows people like you and me right this minute to interact and to uh, end up net positive when it's all said and done. Mm -hmm. So we talk about in Brainwash, applying the test of time to our online experience, time an acronym T, how much time are you going to dedicate to what is it that you're going to do. I'm going to look up something. I'm going to reconnect with my high school friends. I'm going to spend an hour or 45 minutes with Will Cole doing a podcast today. Whatever it is, we set a timer. Either we actually set a timer on our iPhone or whatever, or or an Mm hourglass, or we do it mentally. We say, you know, I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes researching XYZ. Because what happens is while we're online, we all know this to be true, that our brains are hacked by pop-ups that tend and remarkably take us to something else that we're interested in. Well, we know how that happens. Uh, The the I in the test of time is intentional. What is our intention uh, in terms of what we are now going to go online and do? What is the goal? And Mm -hmm. do we remain focused on the intention of that that goal, uh, accomplishing Mm -hmm. that goal? In other words, M, now we've gone T-I-M, are we mindful? Mm. Is this a mindful activity or is it mindless? Allowing ourselves to be sucked down rabbit holes that again, you know, hack into our attention because it's valuable for other people. And finally, the E in the test of time is is the experience uh, empowering, is it net positive? When you're all said and done, you walk away from that saying, Uh, what happened to my day? Uh, what did I just do? Or I accomplished my goal. I downloaded some music that I want to learn on the piano, and now I'm not going to let this, you know, th- this uh, interface take away the rest of my day. You know, it's been said that when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. And if 42 percent of our waking hours is spent in front of a screen, we're not getting outside, we're not exercising, we're not preparing our food, we're not having contact with other people. And let's be clear, when we are told to distance from, from people or to maintain a social separation, it doesn't mean we can't see people. Uh, we can't interact with people. Uh, we can do it. We can do it very safely. We know what the constraints are, and we need to do it. It's really exceedingly important for our, our health, mm-hmm. our mental health, our physical health, keep inflammation tamped down, and certainly to lower our stress levels, our cortisol levels, which feeds back to amping up inflammation and locks us again into that
0: primitive part of our brains. Something that I'm always talking to my patients about is this bidirectional relationship between mental health and physical health. In the West, we like to separate mental health from physical health, but the reality is mental health is physical health. Our brain is part of our body and our thoughts and emotions, our mental health impacts your physical health. It can impact our immune system, inflammation levels, our gut health, our hormones. So we have to look at both sides of the coin. As a functional medicine practitioner, I'm dealing with the physiological stuff, the underlying GI issues, hormonal problems, inflammation issues, or nutrient deficiencies that could be contributing to somebody's anxiety, depression, fatigue, other brain health issues. But conversely, We have to look at the mental, emotional components to our overall wellness. So we have to ask the question, I mean, what's interfering with our happiness? Is something interfering with our happiness or our mental health? And that's why I love what BetterHelp is doing. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. What it is that I really love is that it's professional counseling done securely online. So just like I am, I have a functional medicine telehealth center. What Better Health is doing is professional counseling done virtually as well. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it super easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients around the world. Find the particular expertise you need online. Don't limit yourself to the counselors located in your city. Licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share is 100% confidential, super convenient, professional, affordable, and make sure to check out all the testimonials that they post daily on their website. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com ABW. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health again. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P, com slash A-B-W. On the note of screen time and technology and people are spending more time online, even more so with work and working from home and being socially isolated maybe and depending on their technology more, um, can you explain blue light and the impact that that could have specifically on, on our health?
1: I'd be happy to. So- For those of you who wondered about the segue that uh, Will just offered between our online experience and something called blue light, we we know that our digital devices emit a a high amount of blue light that we don't necessarily see. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that unique frequency of light in the entire spectrum of visible light, that unique uh, frequency tends to degrade our ability in our brains to make an important chemical called uh, melatonin. Melatonin we need for two important reasons. Now you probably thought I'd first go to sleep, but I won't. Melatonin is really important for the balanced function of our immune system. Everybody talks about melatonin for sleep. Yeah, it's important, we'll get there in a moment, but I think in, in this time, when we are really dependent upon both our innate immune systems to be able to greet a a viral exposure, for example, and deal with it. And then our adaptive immune systems to help further deal with it by creating uh, memory T cells and also creating antibodies via our, our B cells. We depend upon both of those. And it turns out that melatonin influences the activity of both of those important parts of our immune system. So what I am saying is that If we don't allow our brains to amp up their melatonin production, it may have some important consequences in terms of balancing our immune systems to the extent that now uh, there are protocols for intervention when people have gotten COVID-19, actually giving people uh, melatonin to help with the way that they deal with it. I would say that think about this on the front end, and keep your melatonins where they, may, they need to be based upon limiting the amount of blue light exposure you get. The other obvious important consideration that does actually also play a role in immunity mm-hmm. uh, is how blue light affects our sleep through melatonin. Melatonin helps you ease into sleep. And when you have uh, low levels of melatonin in the evening, because the blue light from your screen is inhibiting it, then it makes sleep possibly uh, less restorative. Less Mm. restorative sleep affects the immune system. Less restorative sleep, we talked about it earlier, increases inflammation, and that tends to lock you into the fear center, the self-centered part of the brain, the impulsive area called the amygdala. So what can you do? Well, you can take melatonin in the evening, perhaps. You can take a small dosage. Uh, People use as much as 10 milligrams that's way too much for me. I take, uh, when I do take melatonin, I'm very sensitive to this. I take about 1.5 milligrams to three milligrams, probably because my melatonin level is pretty high anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you must, for whatever reason, uh, be in front of a screen, you can wear blue light blocking glasses. Mm-hmm. Who knew mm-hmm. uh, they're really cheap, you know, $15 on uh, any online place you want to go shopping and you can get glasses and you can, where while you're online, while you're watching television, block the blue light, and guess what? You're going to find that you go to sleep a lot easier. One other thing I'll mention is that there tends to be a lot of blue light in LED light bulbs, hmm. so keep that in mind because you know we're really, for the most part, good reason transitioning away from incandescent light bulbs. Mm-hmm. So we're getting uh, you know higher Kelvin temperature light bulbs that tend to have more blue light in them. So you might say, hey, I'm not going to watch TV in bedtime. I'm just going to you know, lie in bed and read, still getting some blue light. If that bulb in your lamp uh, is LED, a lot of upsides to LED. The bulbs last forever. They don't use, you know, they use about one-tenth the amount of electricity, uh, other upsides. But keep in mind, they do provide blue light. Now, blue light's a good thing in the daytime. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you need to get some blue light to shut that melatonin off to reset your entire circadian rhythm or kind of lock it into the fact that this is daytime. Mm -hmm. And it happens when sunlight uh, comes into your eyeballs, uh, goes into your retinas through your optic nerve and that tends to stimulate an area called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. That will be on the quiz that follows. (laughs) And that suprachiasmatic nucleus is involved in telling it's daytime. Mm -hmm. It's time for your brain to be doing certain things, it's time for your physiology to know that you're gonna feed it uh, nutrients. Uh, it's the time that you'll be taking in nutrition uh, as opposed to nighttime when we really shouldn't be involved in digestion or, or eating food, uh, mm-hmm. kind of a, a different uh, story. But, but you know, it all relates back to being in sync with what our bodies really want to be doing in order mm-hmm. to keep us healthy and importantly, reduce inflammation. I mean again talking to you about this you wrote the book on it how fundamental that task is to keeping us healthy and you know allowing us to live a long life but also increasing our health span so that we might live to be 80 90 whatever it may be but during that period of time we can be healthy and active for as long as possible.
0: Mhm. So sleep is, you mentioned being impacted by the blue light. And before I talk about sleep more, I've also seen with patients over the years is from the blue light and being on their screens a lot, their eyesight is going down as well. Like they're, that's part of the problem too. Have, have you seen that too?
1: Uh, I'm not going to say specifically yeah. uh, that I've observed that because it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, right. there is some amazing research that just came out last month Uh, dealing with eyesight and and maybe I'll just go there for a second because I'm still not over it. I'm uh, (laughs) uh, Dr. David Sinclair at Harvard. You may know of him from his work with resveratrol and sirtuins Mm -hmm. and NAD. I uh, had the opportunity to spend uh, an hour with him yesterday and he has a new book. uh, Actually, here you go. It's called life. I happen to have it right there. And Mm -hmm. yeah, he talks in the book about resveratrol about uh, longevity caloric restriction, uh, using NAD as a supplement, maybe taking metformin, all these things. But his latest research is really quite profound. Uh, he has utilized a, a technique that was created by uh, another researcher, Dr. Yamanaka, whereby certain factors are able to revert cells back to an earlier stage in their lives. In other words, bring them back to to childhood, not all the way back to being stem cells, but back to their childhood, where mm-hmm. they already know what they wanna be when they grow up. And the research he published with Dr. Liu in his lab uh, in December was profound. They had mice models, uh, m- mice, and they damaged the optic nerve. They traumatized the optic nerve, which is you know, typically in, in an animal, that's the end of their vision.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They applied these Yamanaka factors, uh, three of the four, Yamanaka mm-hmm. factors and regenerated these uh, neurons from uh, in the optic nerve and restored vision. Wow. By reverting the cells that were remaining that uh, back to youthful, uh, a youthful expression.
0: Mm-hmm. Pretty, Pretty profound.
1: Breathing. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm still, I, I was in this seat that, that I had the time with him yesterday and it was, you know, it takes your breath away because think of the yeah. implications of that long term. Yeah. But, you know, as we, uh, as we are here today, I think we have to be on the front end of all of these degenerative conditions. For example, if it relates to vision, whether it's glaucoma or macular degeneration, the big players that relate to our compromised vision, our failing vision as we age. Mm-hmm. And I think that prevention is really you know, very important. We, mm-hmm. and we recognize that again, inflammation is playing an important role, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as well as, as it relates to macular degeneration Uh, the ability of our bodies to create and utilize antioxidants and other things like zinc, for example, are very important. Mm -hmm. So everything that we can do to reduce inflammation is really so very important. And uh, I would say that leading edge research now is interestingly focused on the powerful increase of inflammation that is created when our cells and importantly, our immune cells become senescent or old when these cells of our immune system begin to get old and begin to fail, uh, they want to let everybody around them know that they're getting old and they need some help. And what they do is they start to secrete these chemicals called cytokines that are inflammatory. So they're declining in their function. And at the same time, they're affecting cells throughout the body. Mm -hmm. And it's the senescence of these cells that we can target. Uh, we know that you know, there's a lot of research being done on what is called senolytic therapy, helping our bodies get rid of these senescent cells and therefore reduce inflammation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, research being done looking at things like fisetin and quercetin. What is the role of intermittent fasting? Uh, how might uh, time-restricted eating, for example, play into this and in helping us rid our bodies of uh, these senescent cells? And also, what is called xenomorphic therapy, whereby we don't necessarily get rid of those cells, but through what is called the MTOR pathway, we are able to reduce the inflammation, the downstream effects mm-hmm. of the inflammation created by these cells that are aging in our bodies. So, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, uh, while we don't have access to Dr. David Sinclair's findings right now, and it will probably be at least a decade or longer. Nonetheless, what you know, the balance of his work has been so instructive mm-hmm. in is that our lifestyle choices play a critical role in the activation of uh, the genes to make our sirtuin enzymes and how important our sirtuin enzymes are basically for our health and longevity.
0: Yeah, well said. And that mTOR pathway for people that don't. No, I mean, that's one of the ways that researchers are exploring how fasting and the ketogenic diet, because of moderating protein, the longevity benefits of fasting and the ketogenic diet in increasing lifespan. Isn't that, isn't that the case?
1: Yeah, that, that's true. I, I would say that most of the data is animal data. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, gee whiz. Uh, you know, a lot of the research has been done in yeast in fact, as mentioned, uh, Dr. Sinclair's work began with yeast and you might say, well, why do I care? Well, uh, because we have the same pathways as fate would have it. You know, yeast and humans, 70% of the genes in yeast we share. It's, it's hard to imagine that yeah. that part of their genome has been conserved for billions of years. Yeah. So these pri- these fundamental pathways have been conserved. And indeed, you know, we have a a powerful controls over switching on the mTOR Mm -hmm. pathway or switching it off, which, you know, is really how we cycle between building up and tearing down. And, you know, it turns out that we really have to recognize that tearing down is really important. Uh, We all want to build our muscles and and build up our tissues, et cetera, but we have to break down as well because when Mm -hmm. we continue to build up uh, we ultimately can be building up things that are not such, not necessarily good for us, not in good shape, uh, that we have to get rid of things that are defective. Mm-hmm. And that when we're constantly in the growth phase, uh, that might relate to abnormal growth or uh, read cancer, what I just said, so that we have to understand how we switch then between breaking down, we call that autophagy, and building up, which is anabolism or an anabolic activity. And you know, we have direct control over that switch. We can control that switch. Similarly, we can control uh, a similar switch uh, called AMP kinase that also regulates some very important pathways that deal with things like insulin sensitivity, uh, Mm -hmm. that deal with things like uh, inflammation, immune uh, activation, immune competence, uh, dealt with basically in, in this case, unlike the mTOR pathway, by how the AMP kinase pathway senses uh, energy levels in our bodies, declining energy levels in our bodies, sensed by the AMP uh, kinase pathway. Uh, and then it turns on, it's activated, and that does some good things. Mm-hmm. It helps us with, glu- with uh, insulin sensitivity, helps us with reducing inflammation. Uh, mm-hmm. But the point I-, I make is that we can really exercise profound control over these pathways by yeah looking at our our diets, looking at exercise. Exercise is such a powerful tool to
0: activate this
1: AMP kinase.
0: Mm-hmm. So as you're talking, every time I talk to you, I feel this way, but I, your brain is a brilliant sponge of information. I'm curious to know how many research journals, how many medical studies are you reading in a day? And how, do you have a secret on on how you're keeping all this information so uh readily available to communicate to people?
1: Uh, I, I can't give you a number in terms of uh, how much, how many research papers I read in a day, but it's it's a big number. And uh, what I do <laughs> is very old school. I also read a lot of books. I also print out a lot of these research studies, but what I do is very old school. It is, I use a highlighter pen. <laughs> and what it. works for me is highlighting what's important and then reading it a second time. And then when I, the second time I read things, Reading the highlights, it all comes to life for me. And so, that, I mean, I told David Sinclair yesterday that I don't know if you you can see this, but yeah, that's what I do. I use throughout. a highlighter. Pen. I told him his is the first book that I burned two highlighter pens on. <laughs> so he's a I good guess it's Some
0: form of compliment. Um, yeah, it is. So that's what works for me. I love it. So if for people that are wanting to maybe read journals more or learn more about what's coming out, like exciting uh, science and research, uh, cutting edge research, what journals are exciting you the most lately? Which, which, uh, what, what, what are you reading more of? That's a lately? good question.
1: And I have an answer for you. I'm really taken by, there's a series of journals that are frontiers in, frontiers in neuroscience, frontiers in, in various topics, frontiers in endocrinology, which I find very, very interesting uh, these days for a number of reasons and frontiers in immunology. So I've gravitated towards those. I like cell. I like PNAS, BMJ, and of course, you know, the new England journal and Lancet uh, and JAMA, I think just to see what, where the translation has taken to the application in the clinic and in, in terms of what are, mm-hmm. what clinicians then are, are going to be taking to the clinic and, and using I find that to be very interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, These days, since COVID started, we're seeing a lot of pre-publication stuff available to us before it's actually been peer reviewed. And I'm loving that because um, the peer review process traditionally has been uh, something that has held up uh, publications for quite some time. If things have not been peer reviewed, well, we have to understand that they've not, that there may be some conflict of interest. There may be some methodological issues uh, that challenge the conclusions, fine. But to be able to see a pre-reviewed study uh, dealing with um, like the role that like one I read yesterday was published in last month uh, looked at the role of NAD, nicotine adenine dinucleotide, uh, as playing a role in the bad outcome with COVID infection amongst mm-hmm. certain groups. We know that NAD goes down with age, it goes down. It is seen to be depressed in coronary artery disease, uh, in type two diabetes, and in obesity as well, the factor, you know, we wonder what is it about those things that, uh, you know, what's the mechanism here? And it looks like NAD is a strong player for that, because NAD is, as I mentioned, uh, very important for the action of uh, the sirtuins and therefore our immune capacity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, love it. I'm curious. uh, This popped in my mind as well. I talked to you a few years ago about this when it happened. The day it happened, actually, was the um, when you went on the CBS morning show. uh, (laughs) I talked to you that day. Yeah, I was like you had left the studio because we had an Instagram live scheduled. And, anyways, as it was going down, we talked about it, and we talked about it on social media too. I think Instagram live. In hindsight, in retrospect. What were, what were your thoughts of that? And for people that don't know, maybe you can fill them in. I mean, they basically, you were on live television. You held it like a champ. You really did hold your own. But I mean, it was really cringy what they did to you, in my opinion.
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, it was the uh, five-year anniversary of Grain Brain. And that was a book that uh, talked about the idea that uh, perhaps gluten is an issue in our health. And more importantly, mm. that sugar and refined carbohydrates may not be what we should be eating. Uh, At the time it came out, it raised a lot of eyebrows because at that point we were still deeply into yeah sugar's good, fat is bad, and all that. I think, to be fair, that time has kind of validated what our our contentions were. But nonetheless, these hosts of this program, you know, the whole mentality of television has changed, and they just they had me set up for uh, they just wanted to take me down. Uh, The the first thing when I when Gail uh, started the interview. She said, you know, this morning I had a, what I think was a, a jelly donut and et cetera. And I know I shouldn't, but uh, you know, I, I, I can't imagine it's necessarily bad for me. And Dr. Perlmutter, we reached out to the sugar industry to get a comment uh, about uh, sugar and your book. And here's what they said. And they put it up. They made a graphic, which <laughs> has been great for me because I've used that graphic uh, aggressively in, in my lectures. Uh, that sugar is okay. there uh, in moderation, that there's no studies out there that indicate that eating sugar is bad. And what my response to that was, first of all, I paused. I said, well, how do you respond to that? Nora, I'm not sure of her last name, jumped on me. And I, I, before I answered, I, I took a clearing breath. And I don't know if they were ready for that. And I said, you know, where we are with sugar, or at least where we were, a few years ago, is pretty much where we were when doctors were telling us that, and the tobacco industry was telling us that we should smoke cigarettes. And it hung in the air because I think I responded nicely. And I tried to have, and they just kept going. Mm -hmm. They said a certain doctor when Grain Brain first came out said that it was a foolishness. And I said, yes, and how incredible it is that he is now using that, my book, Grain Brain, in his Alzheimer's prevention program at the particular Ivy League university that they had mentioned. But anyway, I was about to say, you know, um, coming on your program, I'm a guest in your home. And shouldn't we be kinder to the guests in our home? I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted, I was thinking that, but I just decided I would simply respond yeah. to their questions. But it was a, a realization for me that television has has degraded itself. And they know darn well that when they're attacking people, it's they'll attract listeners and viewers mm-hmm. and then be able to sell their commercials, et cetera. That's how, you know, television is. It's yeah. sensational. It's aggressive. It's fear inducing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all right. I have, uh, I, I had an experience like that one other time in my life where somebody wrote, uh, somebody had written a book about why gluten is great. We should eat more gluten. <laughs> and just the week before that book was published, he wrote an article that's published in a very popular magazine saying how terrible Dr. Perlmutter is, what an awful person he is. And I was awful for every imaginable reason. And my wife, all. everybody is awful. And I sell supplements in my medical practice. Oh, my gosh. Uh, anyway. Wow. So when that article came out the very next morning, I got this kind of emergency conference call from... My publisher, my literary agent, and uh, my writer—all three on the phone with me. Uh, what are you gonna do, Dr. Perlmutter, What are you gonna do? And I said three words. I said, "God bless him," because I realized it's the a—it's the best thing this guy could do is to reach out and attack me, so that I would then engage. That'd be great for him. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that I can't let someone else define what I think of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I work really hard, I try to do the best job that I can each day, yeah. and somebody trying to sell a book is not in any way going to define me in, in mm-hmm. terms of how, you know, what I do and how, how I feel about myself. Yeah. I make mistakes, I'm not perfect, my messaging has changed over time. That was the biggest criticism that Dr. Perlmutter used to tell us never to eat eggs and that any dietary fat is bad. Did I ever say that? I did. I said that 25 years ago (laughs) when that was the best information we had. Right. We've learned with time that that's not good information. I've changed my messaging. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that from, may I say, thought leaders, we should hope that they will change their outreach with time based upon current science. That's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. But anyway, those are all good experiences and yeah. um, I'm grateful for them.
0: Yeah, that's a great outlook. I love that. And anyone that knows you, you know, knows you're a man of integrity and an authentic human being. Who, And it's interesting if if, if you're on... A, a national show talking about, and they're trying to do gotcha journalism about why sugar is good for you. You know, they're going to do gotcha journalism with everybody because what you were saying is not, should not be controversial at all, but they were making it controversial just for the sake of you ratings. Know, and,
1: you know, here it was probably a six minute segment and I, I, I didn't have uh, the chance to go, you know, nor would I've even attempted to go through some of the literature Uh, Talking about sugar and its role in raising blood sugar and its role in increasing uh, body fat and therefore it being pro inflammatory, exacerbating insulin resistance, and any number of things, but changing the microbiome, increasing gut permeability. I mean, where do we stop the conversation? Nor would they have been able to, I think, get their arms around that. So, you know, it's all about sound bites and. There you go. It's all good.
0: Yeah. What's on the horizon for you? What's next? Do you have another book in the works? Like fill me in. Uh,
1: I do. And uh, where I'm going to now is I'm doing a deep dive into fructose and specifically in a relationship uh, that really hasn't received a lot of attention. That is a mechanism involving uric acid that is really fundamental in some of the, most of the damaging effects of a high fructose diet.
0: Mm -hmm. I love it. Do we know when it will be out or?
1: not sure. not sure, Um, but it'll, it'll be probably about a year from
0: now. Oh, I can't wait for that. I mean, you're right. There's so many, um, even natural products that I know you will explore. I'm certain you'll explore in the book that people think are healthy, but are high fructose that are really raising inflammation and specifically uric acid.
1: Yeah. And we've done the. you know, we've already collected our literature base for this and it is vast and, you know, aggressively supportive. So we're already well underway and good. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, it does take me back to my, um, biochemical kinds of interests from years ago and in in explaining how things work for people Mm -hmm. uh, and doing my best to explain it such a way that people can can embrace it Mm -hmm. and then realize how important this is and how you know, this one nuance of our diets uh, has been so infiltrated and needs to be called out.
0: Yeah, well said. The podcast is called The Art of Being Well, and you are, like I mentioned, your brain is a sponge and you know so much information and it's evolved, you mentioned, over the course of your career. But what do you know now that you wish you knew 20 years ago about The Art of Being Well that's been very transformative in your life?
1: Well, um, I'd say you should floss your teeth more often. <laughs> uh, I think that we should be careful uh, in terms of how much sun we get. I learned that, but I I think um, it's important not to sweat the small stuff. Mm. That you know, there's so much that goes on around us that to ruminate over small things that are not quite perfect in life is exceedingly destructive. Uh, I've also learned that we have within us incredibly powerful mechanisms that will keep us healthy for an awful long period of time. And what we now know that we didn't really know years ago is exactly how they work and more importantly, how we can tap into those things. And we've talked about some of that stuff today. We've known for a long time that exercise is good, but I would, I would submit that we really didn't know how it worked. We knew that people who exercise tend to live longer, tend to have less risk of various diseases, uh, stronger bones, more robust immune systems, better glucose control, et cetera. But we didn't know the mechanisms. Uh, now that we know the mechanisms, it really tends to reinforce lifestyle choices like exercise. We knew mm-hmm. nothing about sleep. We, you know, We knew that if we didn't get a good night's sleep, we were cranky the next day. That was kind of it. And sleep was sort of, an afterthought, it was sort of like lost time when we could have been doing something. We now value sleep at the level that it should be valued, recognizing that, you know, we don't spend eight hours a day eating or exercising, but we should spend a third of our lives sleeping. Mm-hmm. And what an important uh, tool it is uh, to keeping ourselves our healthy, to balancing our immune systems and to allowing our brains to function optimally. Uh, So we've learned, you know, quite a bit about the mechanisms whereby lifestyle choices influence our health and longevity and even our gene expression. So we've been able to uh, tap into our life code. When uh, years ago, certainly in medical school, there were two fundamentals that were inviolate. Uh, The first was that we have a fixed number of brain cells and we would never get uh, and we would never grow new brain cells well we now know that's that's just isn't the way it is that we have this process of neurogenesis going on in our throughout our entire lives you know people in their 90s are growing new brain cells and even in, more importantly we know how to augment that process we know how to increase the growth of brain cells for crying out loud so that's something we've learned i've learned uh, that's been you know powerfully uh influential and the second thing is the notion that Our life code, our DNA is not locked in the glass case, that we influence moment to moment the expression of our DNA based upon choices that we make. We modulate, we change our epigenome moment to moment based on every one of our lifestyle choices and some things that you might not consider to be lifestyle choices like the news we watch or the TV programs we watch or our levels of stress. These are the actual choices that we make each day. Think about it. What we choose to pay attention to, be it the birds singing outside or the news on the television, it affects us, but it changes the expression of our life code. Mm. When you contextualize those experiences like that, it really makes you think twice about how you spend your day. And that's been a revelation for me you know, in the past quarter century that uh, has really had an impact.
0: Oh, beautifully articulated. Dr. Perlmutter, thank you so much for your time and being on the show today. Dr. Cole, thank you for having me. Always good to see you. Say hello to everybody out there and uh, miss you guys. Miss you too. If you want to learn more about Dr. Perlmutter's work, his amazing podcasts, his books, you can check it all out at drperlmutter.com. That's D-R-P-E-R-L. M-U-T-T-E-R.com. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. Let's get to today's Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Taylor. Taylor asks, hi, Dr. Cole, what exactly is leptin resistance and how do I know if I have it? Great question, Taylor. Leptin resistance probably heard me talk about it on the podcast in past episodes in passing. Definitely I've talked about it on social media on Instagram I write about different health issues there and obviously with my patients I talk about it at length and I've written articles about it. Basically over the past decade you probably heard me talk about leptin resistance from time to time. It is a hormonal resistance pattern. Leptin is a hormone that our fat cells produce and leptin's supposed to tell the hypothalamic cells of the brain, the hypothalamus to Burn fat for fuel. It's a signaling molecule, just like any hormone is. It's that little biochemical email that's supposed to tell the hypothalamus in this instant it's to burn fat for fuel. And the fat cells are saying, use me for fuel, use me for fuel. But the brain isn't getting the message. The brain is kind of uh, not reading it. So, they're sort of deaf and blind to leptin's existence. So, that's what leptin resistance is this hormonal resistance. Pattern. So this can really drive a lot of weight loss resistance and other metabolic issues. And you could, you know, eat like a rabbit and not lose weight with leptin resistance. So it's definitely can be an underlying impediment for people that are struggling with losing weight. And you have tried working out and being really diligent with that, or going on diets and the weight just won't come off well leptin resistance can be an underlying culprit and cause to that weight loss resistance or that difficulty to losing weight. And it's also associated with other things as well. Um, I deal clinically a lot with people with biotoxin issues, specifically mycotoxins or mold toxins, and people that are exposed to mold toxins. And that really impacts the brain signaling as well and can drive leptin resistance. So the context of leptin resistance has to be understood because there's sort of two camps of people with leptin resistance. There's people that have metabolic syndrome and people that have insulin resistance and insulin resistance as well researched in the scientific literature is being connected to leptin resistance. So when you look at A1C or your your three-month blood sugar average, you look at triglycerides and HDL and the ratio of the two, you look at your glucose levels, your fasting blood sugar, and there are many people that have metabolic syndrome prediabetes, type 2 diabetes that also have high leptin. And that leptin resistance and insulin resistance are sort of intertwined and driving this metabolic issues. And that is for these people what's contributing to their weight loss resistance and other symptoms. And then there's another camp of people as well. There's people that with the mycotoxin, biotoxin issues, and they're exposed to mold and their blood sugar looks fine. Their A1C looks good. The triglyceride HDL ratio looks fine. Like all of the traditional metabolic symptoms, insulin-resistant patterns are fine for these people, but their leptin is through the roof. Oftentimes, and again, there's exceptions to what I'm I'm saying here, but oftentimes people that under that category that have high leptin but all the other insulin-resistant markers look good uh, have mycotoxin issues. Their body has accumulated mold toxins and that's what's driving up the leptin. So the mechanism and what's driving that high leptin has to be understood. And that's where a good solid health history, you hear me talk about comprehensive health history uh, and being due diligent from a clinical standpoint, it's so important because it can start to suss out even before you run labs what are the things that could be at play here? And labs can substantiate that and we can get definitive answers on here. But definitely at that point for the mycotoxin people, you'd wanna run um, mycotoxin tests and these other immune mediated tests like TGF beta one, C4A, C3A, MSH, these other tests because what's happening and specifically with the mycotoxin people is that the hypothalamus isn't speaking to to the rest of the body. So you're going to see high leptin and you're also going to see low MSH because the hypothalamus produces MSH or alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone. And because of the mycotoxin, the mold toxin issues. And so the the fat cells aren't able to communicate to the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus isn't able to communicate to the rest of the body because in this instance, the amount of toxicity from the mold toxin is impacting that communication line. The Other category of people, the more traditional pattern of high leptin resistance, you're typically going to find high triglyceride, low HDL, high um, inflammation markers like C-reactive protein, uh, more traditional inflammation markers, I should say, and high glucose and a high A1C. Uh, Now look, people can have both of those. It doesn't have to be either or. It can definitely be both and uh, someone can have mycotoxin and insulin resistance. I'm just saying there are two separate things going on here and obviously- someone with mycotoxin issues can definitely drive more insulin resistance over time for some people as well. So how you know if you have leptin resistance is measuring serum leptin. It's a blood test and we want it in the optimal zone for most people to be under 10, higher leptin levels above 10. We have to start looking into why. Is it insulin resistance? Is it some sort of other mycotoxin or biotoxin issue? Or is there something else going on here? So we have to look at stress as well and how the person's sleeping. We to look at the rest of their, their health history to understand what's going on here because you can't just hang your hat and one number on the lab and say, well, this is what it is. We have to go upstream. Why? Uh, so that's what leptin resistance is. Hopefully answered your question.